Chapter Five of Travels with a Donkey in the Cévennes by Robert Louis Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Patrick Wallace. Cheylard and Luc. Candidly, it seemed little worthy of all this searching. A few broken ends of village, with no particular street, but a succession of open places heaped with logs and faggots, a couple of tilted crosses, a shrine to Our Lady of All Graces on the summit of a little hill, and all this upon a rattling highland river in the corner of a naked valley. What went she out for to see, thought I to myself, but the place had a life of its own. I found a board commemorating the liberalities of Cheylard for the past year, hung up like a banner in the diminutive and tottering church. In 1877, it appeared, the inhabitants subscribed forty-eight francs ten centimes for the work of the propagation of the faith. Some of this, I could not help hoping, would be applied to my native land. Cheylard scrapes together halfpence for the darkened souls in Edinburgh, while Balquhidder and Dunross Ness bemoan the ignorance of Rome. Thus to the high entertainment of the angels do we pelt each other with evangelists like schoolboys bickering in the snow. The inn was again singularly unpretentious. The whole furniture of a not ill-to-do family was in the kitchen, the beds, the cradle, the clothes, the plate-rack, the meal-chest, and the photograph of the parish priest. There were five children, one of whom was set to its morning prayers at the stair-foot soon after my arrival, and a sixth would ere long be forthcoming. I was kindly received by these good folk. They were much interested in my misadventure. The wood in which I had slept belonged to them. The man of Fusilac they thought a monster of iniquity, and counselled me warmly to summon him at law, because I might have died. The good wife was horror-stricken to see me drink over a pint of uncreamed milk. "'You will do yourself an evil,' she said. "'Permit me to boil it for you.' After I had begun the morning on this delightful liquor, she having an infinity of things to arrange, I was permitted, nay requested, to make a bowl of chocolate for myself. My boots and gaiters were hung up to dry, and seeing me trying to write my journal on my knee, the eldest daughter let down a hinged table in the chimney-corner for my convenience. Here I wrote, drank my chocolate, and finally ate an omelette before I left. The table was thick with dust, for, as they explained, it was not used except in winter weather. I had a clear look up the vent, through brown agglomerations of soot and blue vapour, to the sky and whenever a handful of twigs was thrown on to the fire, my legs were scorched by the blaze. The husband had begun life as a muleteer, and when I came to charge Modestine, showed himself full of the prudence of his art. "'You will have to change this package,' said he. "'It ought to be in two parts, and then you might have double the weight.' I explained that I wanted no more weight, and for no donkey hitherto created would I cut my sleeping bag in two. "'It fatigues her, however,' said the innkeeper. It fatigues her greatly on the march. Look! Alas, there were her two forelegs, no better than raw beef on the inside, and blood was running from under her tail. They told me when I started, and I was ready to believe it, that before a few days I should come to love Modestine like a dog. Three days had passed, we had shared some misadventures, and my heart was still as cold as a potato towards my beast of burden. She was pretty enough to look at, but then she had given proof of dead stupidity, redeemed indeed by patience, but aggravated by flashes of sorry and ill-judged light-heartedness. And I own this new discovery seemed another point against her. 
What the devil was the good of a she-ass if she could not carry a sleeping-bag and a few necessaries? I saw the end of the fable rapidly approaching, when I should have to carry Modestine. Aesop was the man to know the world. I assure you, I set out with heavy thoughts upon my short day's march. It was not only heavy thoughts about Modestine that waited me upon the way. It was a leaden business altogether, for first the wind blew so rudely that I had to hold on the pack with one hand from Chelard to Luc, and second my road lay through one of the most beggarly countries in the world. It was like the worst of the Scottish highlands, only worse, cold, naked and ignoble, scant of wood, scant of heather, scant of life. A road and some fences broke the unvarying waste, and the line of the road was marked by upright pillars to serve in time of snow. Why anyone should desire to visit either Luc or Chélard is more than my much-inventing spirit can suppose. For my part, I travel not to go anywhere, but to go. I travel for travel's sake. The great affair is to move, to feel the needs and hitches of our life more nearly, to come down off this feather-bed of civilization and find the globe granite underfoot and strewn with cutting flints. Alas, as we get up in life and are more preoccupied with our affairs, even a holiday is a thing that must be worked for. To hold a pack upon a pack-saddle against a gale out of the freezing north is no high industry, but it is one that serves to occupy and compose the mind. And when the present is so exacting, who can annoy himself about the future? I came out at length above the Allier. A more unsightly prospect at this season of the year it would be hard to fancy. Shelving hills rose round it on all sides, here dabbled with wood and fields, there rising to peaks alternately naked and hairy with pines. The colour throughout was black or ashen, and came to a point in the ruins of the castle of Luc, which pricked up impudently from below my feet, carrying on a pinnacle a tall white statue of Our Lady, which, I heard with interest, weighed fifty quintals, and was to be dedicated on the 6th of October. Through this sorry landscape trickled the allier, and a tributary of nearly equal size, which came down to join it through a broad, nude valley in Vivarais. The weather had somewhat lightened, and the clouds massed in squadron, but the fierce wind still hunted them through heaven, and cast great ungainly splashes of shadow and sunlight over the scene. Look itself was a straggling double file of houses wedged between hill and river. It had no beauty, nor was there any notable feature, save the old castle overhead with its fifty quintals of brand-new Madonna. But the inn was clean and large, the kitchen with its two box-beds hung with clean check curtains, with its wide stone chimney, its chimney-shelf four yards long, and garnished with lanterns and religious statuettes. Its array of chests and pair of ticking clocks was the very model of what a kitchen ought to be, a melodrama kitchen, suitable for bandits or noblemen in disguise. Nor was the scene disgraced by the landlady, a handsome, silent, dark old woman, clothed and hooded in black, like a nun. Even the public bedroom had a character of its own, with the long deal tables and benches where fifty might have dined, set out as for a harvest home, and the three box-beds along the wall. In one of these, lying on straw and covered with a pair of table-napkins, did I do penance all night long in goose-flesh and chattering teeth, and sigh from time to time as I awakened for my sheepskin sack and the lee of some great wood. End of chapter 5